Well, we are launching a, a new sermon series that I know many of you have been uh, excited for, interested in, uh, a series that I've titled Asking for a Friend. It's a series that answers uh, questions that you have uh, about matters of life and faith. I'll, I'll say from the beginning that there was no way for me to address even half of the questions that came in. I think all total I had over 25 questions that came in from you, many good questions, and it was a really difficult task to sort through. And so I tried to find questions. In fact, I think all of these questions are ones that I got at least twice questions that came in. And so uh, we're going to spend the next roughly seven weeks on this journey with uh, answering these questions from God's Word. Some fun questions, some difficult questions. I'm excited for this series. If your question didn't make the list, if you had submitted a question and there were some good ones that didn't make the cut this time around, please know that I would always love to discuss anything that's on your mind with you. Many of you have emailed me questions, or, or better yet, email me a question and then set up a time to come in and let's talk through that question. All that to say, I'm always available to address any questions or talk through, journey through, wrestle through any questions that you have about life and faith, so don't be afraid to reach out. Another caveat that I want to share this morning is that every one of the topics that we're going to be addressing, as you see, is difficult and complex. The very reason that they are part of this series is that they are difficult questions. Now, there's a tendency among human beings, and Christians are no exception, that we continually want to relieve tension. We want to relieve the dissonance that we feel and experience. And so we oftentimes settle for inadequate or shallow answers in order to sort of check it off the list and just be able to stop thinking about it. We so often find the quickest path to perceived resolution and then we just move on. But oftentimes those answers aren't really satisfactory. They aren't oftentimes answers at all, but sometimes just a choice to continue living in ignorance. Let me share one controversial political example, because why not? The example that I'll share today is immigration policy. There are no shortage of immigration experts on the internet and on television. Have you noticed that? Uh, but the problem with the immigration question is that it's, it's a huge question that has fingers that reach out into so many areas of society. It's much bigger than just border security. Immigration has many other components like economic, historical, moral, humanitarian, religious, and racial questions that are all involved in the discussion. And each of those pieces of the immigration puzzle are viewed differently depending on where you live, depending on your vocation, your background, your experience, your worldview, and your priorities. Many questions of faith and life for the Christian are difficult in the same way. They have fingers that reach out into many other areas. To really wrap our minds around them, we have to put in some work. We have to gain some depth of understanding of related issues and contexts and interconnectedness. And so as I have uh, approached the questions that we're going to deal with in this series, one of my aims has been to be theologically and academically careful and wise. K 
care and wisdom take work. They take uh, some measure of commitment. And so to that end, my hope is to provide you each week with some additional reading, some additional resources that you might find helpful if you want to dig in a little deeper on any of these questions that we're going to be addressing. And today, those additional resources are in the introduction in your bulletin. I list a number of resources that you might find interesting or helpful. Two more brief things that I want to mention by way of introduction. Number one, most of these questions have had multiple books written specifically about these questions. Some of these questions, a few of these at least, have hundreds and maybe even thousands of books that have been written specifically about the topic. And so, as you would understand, I am not able to deal with every angle and every wrinkle in every one of these questions in the course of a half hour on Sunday morning. But I will do my best to share that which is of most importance as we seek to think about these things from a biblical perspective. The second thing I want to mention by way of introduction is, is this, that it's okay for you to disagree with me. We don't have to agree on everything in order to be part of a church family together. I have great respect for many people who would answer these questions and do answer these questions differently than I will. So as long as we are able to disagree respectfully, we will be just fine. These are hard questions. And we can expect some level of disagreement or maybe just a differing perspective on many of these questions. Uh, but I know and I think highly of your collective maturity level. And so I think we will be just fine as we move forward. All right, let's get into our topic for today. And, and the question for this week is, is the Bible trustworthy? Let's not pretend like you don't know how I'm going to answer the question. If I didn't believe that the Bible is trustworthy, I wouldn't be here this morning. I wouldn't be doing what I do. Believe it or not, I, I didn't become a pastor to get rich and famous. I have vast and varied interest. I, I went to college to be a teacher. In fact, I keep my teaching license active just in case you fire me someday. I have a backup plan. When we lived in Minot, when I was working in ministry, when I lived in Minot, I, I had a, my own technology consulting business on the side, managing tech needs for a few clients. I used to work at a museum. I worked in radio. I worked in law enforcement. I've always had interest in other things like funeral work. I have a dream of, uh, of working in a greenhouse or a nursery someday, maybe being a, a tour guide in Washington, D.C. I have very diverse interests. I'm interested in a lot of things. But why am I a pastor? And I think fundamentally it comes down to the fact that I have become convinced that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. And if you know me at all, you know that I've spent some time wrestling with that question. It's not something that I've just taken for granted. Can I actually trust these words that I spend a good part of every week of my life in can I trust that they actually are the words of God and not just an invention of a human being? So as we explore this question, I want to first allow the Bible to speak for itself and then talk about some of the most common questions or points of confusion or argument as it relates to this overarching question of whether the Bible is trustworthy. I'm going to be reading from two different epistle texts, first from 
2 Timothy and then from 2 Peter. Uh, so I'll read first from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, and remind us that this is God's word to us. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then moving to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes these words, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word today, and we pray that you would speak as we consider this most critical of questions. Uh, May you bring clarity uh, and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question when considering the trustworthiness and authenticity of the scriptures is what do they claim about themselves? What claims do the scriptures make about themselves? For today's purposes, I'll summarize the claims of scripture, at least the claims made in our two scripture passages today, into three points. The first one is this. The Bible claims that it is God-breathed. This is, of course, coming from that 2 Timothy passage that I read. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. Some translations use the word inspired in place of God-breathed. I, I really like the fact that the NIV that I read from uh, stick, just sticks with the imagery. It sticks with the original imagery that we see in Greek there. It's important to recognize scripture is not inspired, if we think of that word. It's not inspired in the sense that a bad breakup might inspire the next country song. It's not what we mean by the word inspired. It's not inspired in the way that a trip to the mountains might inspire one toward deeper engagement in conservation efforts. Rather, inspiration here, or being God-breathed, means that these words actually come from God, that they are breathed out by God himself. The emphasis here is that the scriptures find their origin with God and not with human beings. These are not human stories about God. They are God's revelation. The church has emphasized this for thousands of years by referring to the Bible as the Holy Bible. Set apart, unique, not just another book. Why? Because it's a revelation from God. It comes from God himself, not from mankind. All scripture is God-breathed. The second thing that the Bible claims about itself is this, that the Bible was delivered through human authors as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This obviously flows right out of the first point, but we see it explained in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are God-breathed, but they were breathed 
into the hearts and the minds of prophets and apostles who put pen to paper. This is such an important concept for us. God uses the individual personalities and knowledge and experience and style and perspective of each human author to fashion his holy word. We see this maybe most clearly in the four gospel accounts. Each account is coming from a different angle, a different perspective, perhaps a different target audience in mind. Each of those focused on different details, emphasizing different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry, and yet they are one cohesive unit. Why? Because though there are many human authors, there is one true divine author. The phrase carried along that we saw in 2 Peter deserves just a moment of our time. It's really a word picture that comes out of the world of sailing. It's a phrase that's used to speak of a ship with its sails raised being carried along its course by the breeze. God is the source, the inspiration, the wind in the sails, to use Peter's imagery. The message is his. He is controlling the process. The human authors are the vessels through which he accomplishes his revelation. The Bible is God-breathed. It was delivered through human authors as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the final thing that I'll point out that Scripture claims about itself is this, that the Bible is the final authority in matters of faith and life. This is perhaps the most difficult of the three for us to actually believe. We see this back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. The Bible, Paul says, is the basis, the textbook, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And another way of saying that is to say that the Bible is the authority. It's the measuring stick by which we evaluate both our faith and our life. And when we consider what the Bible says about itself, we pretty quickly understand that there's no room to see the Bible as simply, as many have called it, the good book. There's no space left for us to think of the scriptures as merely a helpful guidebook for life. We must either, at least according to what the scriptures say about themselves, we must either accept the Bible as God's authoritative word to which I must then submit myself, or we must reject it as not being what it claims to be, as a fraud. But there's no real middle ground left for us. People have been trying since the scriptures were written to carve out some middle ground, to still see the Bible as valuable without seeing it as authoritative. But when pressed, they will always end up in the place of casting aside parts of the Bible that they don't like, as maybe offensive or antiquated. Like Thomas Jefferson, for example, they will cut out parts of the Bible that don't seem advantageous to them, in the moment, or that they can't reconcile in their minds, and and just focus on the things that make them feel good, that seem good for today. But of course, the moment that one begins that sort of work, they place themselves as the true authority, assuming the place of the divine word giver, usurping the authority that only God has. The Bible is the final authority, it claims, 
in matters of faith and life. And it will allow us, the scriptures allow us to see it in no other way. All right, we've established what the Bible says about itself. It asserts that it's inspired by God, that it's brought about through human authors, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and that it is the authority for faith and life. And so I want to change our focus now to talk about the common questions regarding the trustworthiness of the Bible. Common questions, accusations, points of confusion. And, and the first one, first question that naturally comes up is this. How do we measure the trustworthiness of the Bible? Of course, this is a huge question because our Bible uh, has 66 books written over a period of 1,500 plus years. And so for today's purposes, I want to focus our thoughts about trustworthiness specifically on the most important claims or most important aspects of our faith. The life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to focus our discussion on the New Testament. That's not to say that the Old Testament isn't important. It certainly is. We'll talk about that briefly in a little while. But the Apostle Paul tells us that the main and central idea of the Christian faith is the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we measure the trustworthiness of what we read in the scriptures about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? The first step that any historian would take is to try to verify it through statements and interviews and writing of witnesses, of those who were there. And to this point, there's actually very little contention or disagreement. Those who spent time with Jesus wrote about it. We have four gospel accounts, along with letters written by others who claimed to be there. But we actually have more than that. We have other contemporary letters and accounts written that aren't part of the scriptures. These have varying degrees of trustworthiness, but there are certainly many, many statements written by witnesses who claim to have seen Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. One of the most trustworthy one from a sort of a secular history perspective is a Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus was the son of a Jewish priest. He lived around the time of Jesus. He actually rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. He ultimately became a Pharisee. But Josephus establishes in his writing that Jesus was a real person, and he even records Jesus performing miracles that attracted both Jews and Gentiles. Those are powerful words coming from someone who didn't believe that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be, but nonetheless had admiration for him. And so very few people actually deny the existence of a historical Jesus. Additionally, the Roman historian Tacitus also mentions Jesus' crucifixion. And both he and a Roman governor by the name of Pliny the Younger speak about what they referred to as the superstition, and they would sort of put it in quotes. So this superstition that existed among the early Christians. Neither of these men were Christians. In fact, they were persecuting, to some degree, Christians. But they talked about this superstition that these first Christians believed in, and most historians believe that that superstition is the teaching, the understanding that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is fascinating because we have two 
historians who didn't affirm that Jesus was the Messiah who say that those closest to him actually really truly believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what we discover is we don't just have the biblical accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but we have extra-biblical accounts verifying significant parts of the story and even recognizing that these people really believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And Pliny, the younger, observed that these Christians get up before the light and they worship Jesus as if he were God, even in the face of persecution. They stuck by their story and their understanding of what had happened to Jesus. They lived their lives as if they were really, truly convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And keep in mind, we aren't talking generations or centuries removed from Jesus. Some of these Christians that Pliny the Younger is talking about lived during the New Testament era. So there is pretty ample historical evidence, enough that a a rational thinker would agree that Jesus lived. There's not a lot of debate about that, that he was crucified. That's attested to by a number of Roman uh, historians. And that those who were closest to him really believed that he was who he said he was, that he rose from the dead, that he was God. There are other ways we might measure the trustworthiness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For example, how early are the records that we have? We have records that are incredibly close to the actual events of the New Testament. Most historical documents, if we think in the world of history, most historical documents uh, from the ancient world have at least a 500-year gap that takes place from the originals until the copies or the manuscripts that exist to this day that have been preserved. Here's what I mean. Think of the works of Julius Caesar, some writings that some of us had to read years ago. The works of Julius Caesar, the the time frame of the original writing of Julius Caesar's works was about 100 to 44 BC, so in the century leading up to Jesus' birth. The earliest copy that historians have today is from around 900 AD. So if you're doing the math, it's about a thousand year gap between when the original documents were written and the earliest manuscripts that we have today. And there are about uh, 10 ancient copies that exist today. So 10 of those historical manuscripts. Let's consider the the writings of Aristotle. Again, somebody that many of us likely had to read in school at one point or another. Aristotle lived three centuries before Jesus, and the earliest copies of his writings that still exist today are from about uh, 1000 to 1100 AD. So that gives us about a 13 to 1400 year gap between when Aristotle would have written those documents until the earliest copies that survive today. There are about 49 copies that historians have access to today of the writings of Aristotle. So let's talk about the New Testament. The New Testament was written in the first century. Uh, We have copies dating to the middle of the second century. So what that means is that there are manuscripts that are written for sure within 100 years of the writing of the originals. Uh, So from an ancient history perspective, that's incredibly proximate. That's incredibly close. And by the way, there are about 5,000 to 6,000 copies of manuscripts of the New Testament that scholars have access to today. 
so not only do we have reliable witnesses, and many of them attesting to the events of the New Testament, but we also have an abundance of old manuscripts that are very close from an ancient history perspective to the writing of those originals. I haven't spoken uh, of the Old Testament. That's a, probably a whole other sermon for a, another time, but I've, I've wanted to focus on the central claims of the Christian faith. And, and historically, there is every reason to assume that the copies of the New Testament that we have today are accurate to the originals written by those eyewitnesses. And, and many of the claims have been verified even by those who thought Jesus was simply a Jewish rabbi or teacher. Let's move on to the second question that often comes up, and that's this. Can we trust the process by which the Bible was written and compiled? Uh, I've spoken about this to some degree already. We have good historical reasons to assume that those human authors of the Bible were really who they said they were. There's not a whole lot of debate about that. But what about the process of compiling the Bible? We'll talk about, and I know the question will come up, and it did in the questions that you submitted a couple of times. So we'll talk about the Apocrypha, or the Deuterocanonical books, in a few moments. But let's first look at the overall compilation process. And it varies from the Old Testament to the New Testament. By the time of Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry, that the Hebrew Bible was intact and complete. And there really wasn't much disagreement about it. Jesus and the apostles had available to them the same 39 books of the Old Testament that you have in your Bible in front of you today. The books were maybe organized a little bit differently. Some of them were combined. So like First and Second Kings were combined into one, some things like that. But the content was exactly the same as you have in your Bible today. Jesus and Peter and Paul read the same Old Testament as you. This is verified by Josephus. He's helpful in this area. He declared that it had actually been settled for centuries by the time that he lived. And he said this, quote, nobody has ventured to add or remove a syllable from the Hebrew Bible. Then we get to the New Testament, and we have documents as early as the mid-second century. So within less than a century from the completion from the writing of the final New Testament books, uh, we have pretty much a complete listing of the New Testament books, including the Gospels all the way through Revelation. We have another update from late in the second century written by Clement of Alexandria, a name that might be familiar to some of you who like history. Clement of Alexandria was writing, and he wasn't intending to give a complete listing of the New Testament. Nonetheless, he mentions in this writing almost all of the New Testament books, and he doesn't mention any that aren't in our New Testament today. About 50 years later, we come across the church father uh, who went by the name of Origen of Alexandria, again, a name that might ring a bell. He mentions uh, in his writing essentially all of the New Testament books, and by 367, uh, we have very clear records of the 27 New Testament books in the order in which we find them in our Bibles today. So starting very early, within a hundred years of the completion of the New Testament, we have a very general agreement on those New Testament books, moving toward complete and total agreement. Any dispute that was happening, any argument about whether a book belonged in the New Testament or not, uh, really came down to just a handful of books. And those books were uh, Second Peter, Jude, 
James, and 2nd and 3rd John. So those were the, the letters that were somewhat in question or that people were debating about. We call this collection of books the biblical canon. The early church tested and evaluated and verified the theology of, and not only the theology, but the historicity of these books before they would consider them part of the canon. There were many other writings, and maybe some of you are familiar with with this, many other writings, other gospels, for example, that didn't make the cut. We can have great confidence in the process, uh, in the compilation of uh, both the Old and New Testaments. And so that leads into the next question, question number three, which is, why do our Roman Catholic friends have a different Bible? Who is right? Perhaps partly because of our location and our context in this part of the state. This was asked by several of you in different ways. In short, I want to make mention of the fact that there is absolutely no disagreement between us and the Roman Catholic Church on the composition of the New Testament. That's important to make note of. There's no disagreement on the New Testament books. We're in complete agreement. The discrepancy between the Protestant and the Roman Catholic Bibles comes with what we might call the intertestamental period. So that time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The primary discrepancy comes uh, by way of a collection of books that are often referred to as the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. And, And I should mention that it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. For example, the Eastern Orthodox Church actually has more uh, apocryphal books that they affirm than our Roman Catholic friends. The Jewish believers of Jesus' day affirmed as scripture the Old Testament that we have in front of us this morning. However, they also recognized a series of other books as valuable for teaching and history and devotion. And so Jews in Jesus' day recognized the Old Testament. They affirmed that Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament. But they also had books uh, and writings from the period between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament that they held up as valuable. Not on par with Scripture, but as valuable. We often, as I mentioned, refer to this collection as the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. Deutero means second, so second canon. When you go to a Roman Catholic funeral mass, for example, you might hear a reading from the Book of Wisdom. Book of Wisdom is dated to about a century or so before Jesus' birth. Or you might be familiar with 1st and 2nd Maccabees. These books tell of the history of the Jewish revolt against Greek forces when they had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. Dates to about 150 B.C. Almost all faithful Jewish scholars to this day see those second canon books, those apocryphal books, as helpful, but not as scripture. And that's how the early church primarily dealt with those books as well. Uh, There was debate over the role of the books. Some early church leaders felt like they should play more of a role, for example, be read during the worship service. Others felt like they were only useful for sort of private reading and study but not for use in the worship service. This was true even of of St. Jerome, who was, uh, some of you know, responsible for translating the scriptures into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. He said that the apocryphal books were valuable and helpful, but in a lower class than scripture, not 
necessarily inspired by God. He differentiated between canonical books, so books that were part of the canon, and what he called ecclesiastical books, so books for the, sort of for the good of the church. That changed, of course, many of you know, drastically in the year 1545. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church called the Council of Trent. It was convened in response to the Protestant Reformation. And much of the manipulative and, and errant teaching of the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages, such as indulgences and purgatory, had its origins not in the New Testament or the Old Testament, but in these apocryphal writings. And so at the Council of Trent, it was really important for them to clarify and to sort of double down on the fact that they saw these uh, apocryphal books as authoritative, as part of the canon. One quick example, Tobit chapter 12 says that the giving of alms, the giving of alms is giving money for the sake of the poor. Tobit 12 says the giving of alms, quote, has the power to save and purify from sin. So that was an important doctrine for the Roman Catholic Church as they were fundraising in the Middle Ages. So some of these teachings were essential to the financial well-being of the church. There has been debate about the role of these extra books for centuries, both before the Roman Catholic Church and after the Reformation, but the consensus among God's faithful outside of the influence of papal authority has been that they are helpful, that they are worth reading, but that they are not inspired scripture. This was, for example, the position of those who translated the King James Bible. They also, in their work, translated the apocryphal writings, but translated them as helpful, but not on the same level as Scripture. The firm emphasis, the insistence on canonizing these books is primarily because so much of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that doesn't show up in the Old and New Testaments is found in these books. That that doctrine depends upon these books being seen as authoritative. In short, the Roman Catholic Church wanted in the Middle Ages to continue selling indulgences. And when people could start to read the Bible in their own language, they realized pretty quickly that some of these doctrines were not in the scriptures. And so the only way to deal with that effectively was to elevate the status of these deuterocanonical books to be on par with the rest of Scripture. If you have more resources on this, I'd love to share. If it's an area of interest, let me know and we can meet and, and I can pass some of those along at some time. Uh, the next question that I want to deal with today is question number four. Hasn't the Bible changed over time? This is a common criticism, a common question that comes up. It's found both within the church and is frequently brought up by skeptics of the faith. And, and I, I find that almost every time I hear this argument or this accusation, it relates to one of two things. They're either speaking of uh, differences between translations, or they are talking about the handful of, of what are typically referred to as textual variants. Let's talk briefly about the translations first. Uh, in order for you to read the Bible... Someone had to translate it from the, the source language, which is Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, into your language, into English. Somebody had to do that translation work for you. And that's no small task because we have, for example, one concept that can be expressed in several different words. 
different times we have several concepts that are all sort of lumped in and expressed in one word. So for example, in our text today, 2 Timothy 3, if you look at 2 Timothy 3.17, it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And then in verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word servant there is actually the word anthropos in Greek. Some other translations might use the word man. So that the man of God. But when Paul writes this, he's speaking of anthropos as human being. And not so much as man as in the male sex of the human species. And so how do we translate that? Translators have to make decisions. I think I would have chosen the word person here. I think it's a good expression, but man is fine as well. Servant works in this setting. So man, man is okay, so long as we know we're not talking about the male sex of the human species, but instead talking about mankind in general. And that's a great illustration of why people will argue that the scriptures have changed. When in fact, it's really a wrestling, a struggle to bring a concept into an ever-changing language. Translation work is always difficult. There are always compromises because language is dynamic. It's always changing. It never stays the same. New words are constantly being added. Old words are falling off and are falling out of use. And we change the way that we use words over time. Uh, The one other area that I've heard accusation of Christians changing the Bible is in regard to what are called textual variants. And I'll I'll be brief here. We don't have time and most of you aren't interested in a deep dive into this. Uh, So let me give you the 10,000 foot flyover. A textual variant is when there is a a variation between manuscripts in regard to a particular word, verse, or paragraph of scripture. I'll give you two examples, two primary types of variations that we see. Uh, The first one Uh, is a difference in maybe division of words or in punctuation, things like that. I have an example on the screen. uh, That word that's, uh, those uh, phrase that's all uh, crammed together. What does it say? Somebody tell me what it says. Okay, so some of you may uh, read that as God is now here. The pagans here might read it as God is nowhere. But do you see that distinction, right? So we, we run into this a lot, especially in the Greek language, where words are just crammed together and they don't follow editorial standards like we would prefer them to follow. And so sometimes translators have to make decisions about does this say God is now here or does this say God is nowhere? You run into a handful of these things in the scriptures when we look at translation work. And and so almost always, these things are marked with a footnote. So sometimes the footnote will just say, a variant could be. And what that means is there is a word crammed together, there was a punctuation issue, or there was a word that they just, they're not exactly sure what it means. It doesn't show up anywhere else uh, in Greek. So, So you run into that type of thing. And those are almost always explained in our Bibles. Uh, But occasionally you'll have somebody point out, well, in in this version they said this, and in this version it says this, and look, they changed the Bible. In fact, they didn't change the Bible. They're just trying to be as accurate as they can to the original manuscripts. The other thing that we see is, and you've probably heard about this or maybe seen it on the internet, uh, there's a number of 
I've seen it on Facebook so many times. I've tried to correct it, and people don't care. Uh, people aren't interested in truth, so they'll say what they want to say. But it almost those posts almost always relate to either Mark 16 or John chapter 8. Mark 16 or John chapter 8, you've probably uh, noticed uh, these situations when you were reading through, that in more, most of our modern Bibles, these portions are either set aside, bracketed off, put in italics, moved to the footnotes. They deal with it in some way. There are also about 16 other New Testament verses that are included in, for example, older Bible translations like the King James that are left out of our modern translations or sometimes partially left out. Again, the explanation is really quite simple, both for uh, Mark 16 uh, and for John chapter 8. The explanation is pretty simple. When the King James was translated in 1611, they had a very limited number of manuscripts available to them. They didn't have the internet, right? Uh, so they weren't able to compare other known manuscripts categorized by age in order to determine which are more reliable and which are less. Obviously, the younger the manuscript is, so the, the later date of the manuscript, the less reliable it is. There's more room for mistakes to be made. Translators today have the ability to pull up on their computer and compare side-by-side side every fragment of every manuscript related to every New Testament passage that exists. And, and what they find is that the older manuscripts, the closer the manuscripts are to the originals, many of them don't contain some of these variants like Mark chapter 16 or like John chapter 8. So when, we, when you look at the older manuscripts, those passages aren't there. They were likely inserted at one time or another, maybe written in the margins. Those two passages in particular are, are likely true. They just most likely were not written uh, by those gospel writers in the original. Final question that I want to end with today is this. Hasn't the Bible been disproved by scholars and historians? I'm not going to give this a lot of time today because we could talk in circles about, for example, particular nuances and understandings of the creation account or whether uh, a real Adam and Eve existed and how those portions of God's revelation intersect with science and history. I'm much more interested in talking about the big picture of the Bible. And we see tremendous consistency and historical accuracy when it comes to both anthropology, the study of, of human beings, and geography, in both the Old and New Testaments. There have been books written, for example, on the overlap between Jewish history and Egyptian history, or between Jewish history and Babylonian history. To put it simply, when we look at the, at the broad outline of the biblical timeline, we know that the central people of both the Old and New Testament likely lived in the places they claimed to live and did many of the things that they claimed to do. And, and there's really no historical evidence to the contrary. We know that the Hebrew people lived in the place that they claimed to live. So no, the, the Bible has not been disproved by science or by history. And I'm very satisfied with saying that in areas where there is presumed conflict, one of two things might be true. Either our, our science or our history may be flawed or incomplete. That happens frequently. Or our individual reading and interpretation of certain passages might be flawed or incomplete. But there's nothing about my study of, of history or my reading of science that would lead me to assume that the scriptures are 
wrong, disproved. This conversation is in some ways like the debate of the chicken and the egg. Does a person believe in Jesus Christ because they become convinced that the Bible is true and trustworthy? Or does one become convinced that the Bible is true and trustworthy because they believe in Jesus Christ? Think of it this way. Faith is required in order to affirm what the Bible says about itself. But faith itself is a product of God's word. Apart from faith, one might find the scriptures to be captivating, might find the scriptures to be historically accurate, might find the Bible to be beneficial for society, but but they will never be fully true and personal and authoritative without faith. When I look at the historical record, when I look at the the consistency, the scholarship, the staggering number of New Testament manuscripts, the, the critical analysis that it's been given, it's been under the microscope for centuries. The way that scripture provides an explanation for so much of what I see in our world and observe around me. I can't help but argue not only for its trustworthiness, but also for its authority over our lives. I want you to consider this warning as I close. You lose little if you affirm the reliability and authority of the Bible in this life and are proven wrong in the next. Very little is lost. However, if you you lose everything, if you deny the Bible in this life and are proven wrong in the next. And so the reasonable mind, when considering the trustworthy nature of the Bible, will do as Jesus invited us to do, to repent and believe the good news. The good news that Jesus didn't just live and die for no reason, but that he lived and died and rose again for you. And so we are invited today to repent and to believe, to believe the good news. Let's pray. God, may your word create faith, the faith that we need to to believe all that you have said. We repent of our sin. We repent of our unbelief. We thank you that uh, Jesus really did live, that he really did die for our sin, that he rose again, that we too might rise one day. And so we thank you that your word is good and true and trustworthy and that it really does endure forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.